Today we're coming towards the end of our studies in the Lord's Prayer, and we're coming to the passage that looks at and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. And I wanted to go in a little more depth this morning with the themes that come out of the Lord's Prayer. So if you would turn with me, please, to Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4, as we're reading verses 1 through 13. And you'll find it on page 1595, page 1595. And we're focusing on the passage of the temptation of Jesus in the desert. Luke begins with those wonderful words and their unexpected words. He begins this chapter, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the desert, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, Tell this stone to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man does not live on bread alone. The devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor, for it has been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want to. So if you worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered, It is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, Throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered, It says, do not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. Amen. And we trust that God will bless to us this reading from his holy word. The first Sunday in March, we began, as most of you know, a new series on the sermon, excuse me, on the Lord's Prayer. And on that first Sunday, we said there are two accounts of the Lord's Prayer. They're almost identical. But in the Luke version in chapter 11, one of the disciples says to Jesus, Lord, teach us how to pray. And if you were with us, you remember we said that of all the things a disciple would ask Jesus to teach, why teach us to pray? Think of all of the miracles all of the special moments they had with Christ, moments of great intimacy, also moments of public ministry. Why teach us to pray? And you remember we said that there was a distinct possibility that they saw the link between Jesus' prayer life and the impact of his teaching. They saw the link between his character and integrity, his holiness, his righteousness, and his daily lifestyle and his prayer. They saw all of that as one. They saw his prayer life and how he worked out his faith day by day by day in the midst of the messiness and challenges and distractions and demands of life. I suspect they saw all of that and they made the link and said, Lord, teach us how to pray. I also suspect 
But they saw Jesus withdrawing from time to time when he was in danger of exhausting his energies and losing his perspective. He would go and spend intimate moments with his Father in prayer. I think that's why they prayed, Lord, teach us how to pray. And this morning as we come to this final section in Matthew's Gospel, and it reads, And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. The question I get asked the most about these words is this. Richard, does this suggest that the Lord would lead us intentionally, deliberately, into a situation where we will sin, we will be tempted? And of course the answer is no, he would never do that. So how are we to understand these words? Now most of you are aware that there is a literary device called parallelism. And parallelism means this. You say something, you say something a second time and it's almost identical to the first. In essence, you're repeating yourself. And you're repeating yourself for emphasis, knowing that what you're saying is significant and that folks may not pick it up the first time. And that's exactly what's going on here in the words of Jesus. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. He's saying the same thing twice to give us focus and familiarity so that in fact we get it. Repetition adds emphasis. So he's not saying for a second that God will lead us into a situation where we'll find ourselves uh, being tempted and God knows that before. And of course, you also know that the word temptation can also be translated testing. And so when we're praying this prayer, we're saying, Father, lead us not into a situation that will be so difficult that we will be tested beyond what we can bear. And in fact, he's saying, deliver us from all of that. And that's what's going on here. And this morning as we go further into this sense of what does it mean when we face temptation and how should we respond, I did want to look at the passage of Jesus in the desert for those 40 days. And the question is this, what was he doing for 40 days in the desert? Was he trying to crouch in some shade somewhere? Was he just walking up and down? Was he sleeping all the time? What was he doing for 40 days? I think he was doing this. He was spending moments of deep intimacy with his heavenly Father. And throughout the Gospels, you see Jesus quoting again and again from Scripture. And I think what Jesus was doing during those 40 days and spending those deep, intimate, abiding moments with his Father, he was preparing for what was coming. He had three years of public ministry. And in those 40 days, he was spending time with those he knew best, his heavenly fathers, the writers of the Old Testament. And most of the times you see Jesus quoting Scripture, he's doing it off the top of his head. It's in his very bloodstream. It's deeply embedded in his heart. And I suspect he was thinking through and praying about his own ministry and how he was fulfilling all that the Old Testament had prophesied. It was during those moments he was strengthening himself, re-energizing, moments of refreshment and renewal. And you can almost hear him saying, Our Father who art in heaven, 
He's doing what Luther said all those years later, and we've reminded ourselves each Sunday morning when we've been in the Lord's Prayer. What is prayer? Prayer is when you climb up into the lap of God and you rest and relax right there. And all of that, I suspect, took place during those 40 days as he was preparing for what was to come. But in the midst of those days, he was tempted by the devil. And Luke makes it crystal clear. Look at verse 1. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the desert. Here was the Holy Spirit saying, Jesus, you need this time for preparation. Where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. Folks, please don't hold on to the miss or the popular misconception that he was tempted at one point. It is pretty clear he was tempted throughout those 40 days. That is hard going. Hard going. And notice what the first temptation was. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Now that wouldn't be a temptation for you or I, would it? Because we know we cannot turn stone into bread. So it wouldn't be a temptation for us. Can you imagine... Some of us understand what it feels like when we skip lunch. And by evening meal, we say, Whoa, I'm ready to eat. I'm hungry. Forty days. And remember, several times in his ministry, he turned five loaves, two fish, and he took them and blessed them and broke them and fed 5,000. On another occasion, 4,000. So what was wrong with turning bread, or a stone rather, into bread? He was hungry. What was wrong with that? And what was wrong with it was this. Not so much the act itself, but what Satan was calling him to do was this. He was calling him to give in to the power of temptation and sin. Now that's a concept we need to grasp. He was calling him to give in to the concept and the power of sin. In our minds, we tend to associate sin with an act, an actual event. We were involved in something, we did something, or we didn't do something. And that is clearly, at times, a sin. And we know that, and we grasp that. But sin is much more powerful than simply the act or event itself. And Scripture tells us that many times. Many times, Jesus immediately responded by quoting Scripture and says, man does not live on by bread alone. And he knew exactly what Satan was asking him to do. He was asking him to give in to the power of sin. And notice it unfold, verse 5. The devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor, for it has been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want to. So if you worship me, it will all be yours. Now understand the subtlety of what's happening here. If you truly are the Son of God, if you are who you claim to be, if that's who you truly are, in a heartbeat, and I can give you all the acclaim, 
all of the power, all of the authority that belongs to all of these kingdoms. And think what you could do with that. Think of the good you could have. Think of the impact you would have. Think of the acclaim and the popularity. After all, that's who you are. You are God incarnate. And think of the worship and the adoration that you would receive. Think of the lives you could impact and all that would take place. And all you need to do is recognize me for who I am. Worship me for who I am. And all of this will be yours. Every part of it. And notice what else takes place. He's saying to him, very subtly and incidentally, You don't need to worry about a crucifixion or being arrested or tortured or dying for the sins of humanity. You don't need to worry. I can give you all the acclaim now, here, now. You don't need to go through the next three years and that awful ending ends in tragedy and disaster and you simply, your life is taken. We can avoid all of that. All of that. Recognition, the acclaim, the appreciation, no need for any of it. And Jesus resists again when he says, It is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only, quoting Scripture. And he understands this that time spent in the Scriptures has refreshed and renewed and enabled and strengthened him. And we see it right here. Then the devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand in the highest point of the temple. And if you are the Son of God, he says, throw yourself down from here, for it is written. And he goes on to quote a passage of Scripture that says, God will take a look after you. He'll send his angels to protect you. And of course, Jesus refuses. And he refuses for multiplicity of reasons. But some of them are these. That Scripture teaches us again and again and again, although this act of sin itself is heinous, and debilitating. Scripture teaches the power of sin is much more subtle. It is far greater than anything we initially imagine because within it, it is tranquilizing and addictive and enslaving. It is dark, it is distasteful, and it is debilitating. How many times Have you heard me say that when someone comes to my office and sits down heartbroken over a situation they have been involved in and they should never have been involved in it in the first place, their head will go into their hands and they will say, what on earth was I thinking? What on earth was I thinking? Why did it end up like this? And the point was they weren't thinking. Because sin, with all of its tranquilizing, addictive, and enslaving quality, had captured the heart and the mind and the soul, and it would not let go. And folks, let me say that again because we need to get it. Sin has upon the heart and mind and soul a tranquilizing effect. It tells us it's no big deal. And it tells us everyone's doing it. And it's telling us it really doesn't matter because it comes as attraction initially. 
It comes with promises of fulfillment and joy and pleasure. It tells us that it will put you in the driving seat of your life, and surely you are mature enough to handle this. You're an adult. You're sophisticated. You can deal with this. And rationale and logic never wins the day when it comes to sin because of the power it has in terms of that tranquilizing, addictive, enslaving effect. Folks, please hear this. When you sin with the mind, it shrivels our ability to reason and rationally think our way through it. Earlier this week, I was watching a program on the History Channel, a documentary, and they were looking back at the Second World War. And it looked at some of the significant Nazis in power back then. And what was their excuse? I was simply following orders. Simply following orders. They were killing people by the million. By the million. And they were justifying it and rationalizing it in their mind. And their emotion had been so detached, so detached, they were at the place of thinking there is nothing wrong with this. That's what sin does. That's what sin does. Last Sunday morning I mentioned to you three of the family members who had lost loved ones in June uh, 2015 in the shooting tragedy in Charleston at the Emmanuel, Mother Emmanuel Church. And I read to you what the family members said and how spectacular, how full of grace their response was when it came to forgiveness. Let me share with you this morning what Dylan Ruth said at the end of his trial. I would like to make it crystal clear. I do not regret what I did. I am not sorry. I have not shed a tear for the innocent people I killed. And later he wrote, I have shed a tear of self-pity for myself. I feel pity that I had to do what I did in the first place. Talk about sin having a tranquilizing, addictive, enslaving quality. It's right there. And when Jesus refused to give in to temptation, what he was doing was this. He was saying no to the specific act and the temptation itself, but he was also saying this. I will not give in. I will not give in to the enslaving, addictive, tranquilizing effect that sin can have on my life. Over the last couple of weeks, as we have studied further and further in the Lord's Prayer, we have looked at what does it mean when we pray, Thy kingdom come. And do you remember what we said? We said, when we pray, Thy kingdom come, we are asking, Father I surrender and submit myself to your reign and your rule and your power in my life. That's what I submit to. That's what I need. When I climb up into your lap for those moments of deep abiding rest in you, when I am re-energized and renewed in prayer, I am surrendering my life to you, not to the sin and the temptation that surrounds me, but I'm surrendering it to you. When you sin with the mind, it becomes ultimately self-destructive. Sin is an act of moral suicide. 
because you lose the ability to reason and and use rationale as you continue to sin with the mind. No longer do you have the self-control you once had. Why? Because it is so powerful. And the sin shrinks your ability to think and to control your life. It promises you that you will be in the driving seat and it ends up the very opposite. Let me give you a simple example. And the power of sin is seen all the way from gossip to addiction with heroin, cocaine. And gossip is a good example because it starts out as something almost innocuous. It doesn't really matter. It's no big deal. But this is how it works. It gets a hold of the heart and the mind. And you suddenly discover you've got information. And that information is valuable. And now you have an audience because you know what they don't know. And you feed on it. And when you parcel it out, you're the center of attention. And people are focused on you. They want to hear what you're saying. They're hanging on your every word. And what in fact is taking place is this. You're assassinating someone else's character. You're bringing them down by lifting yourself up. That's the power and the tranquilizing effect that sin has in our lives and the addictive quality is there because it brings pleasure and joy in the midst of it. And Jesus absolutely would not give in to the addictive, tranquilizing power of sin, innocuous as it seemed to take a stone and turn it into a bread when he was hungry. He resisted and resisted passionately. Folks, please understand this. When we give in to the addictive dynamic of sin, our tolerance level for it becomes higher and higher and higher and higher. And sin begets sin. And lies necessitate lies. And bitterness necessitates and births bitterness. Racism breeds more racism. Envy, more envy. Jealousy, more jealousy. And the only way to break that cycle is to climb up into the lap of God and say, Father, I cannot handle this. I need your help. I am absolutely addicted to this. I cannot do it on my own. And every time I try to resist, I give in and I end up feeling shameful and regretful and sorry, but I have no power to deal with it. None. Please remember this, that when Jesus was in the desert for 40 days, what did he do in terms of his response? And this is how to break it and have victory over it. We looked at it two or three Sundays ago. We put God central in our thinking. That's the first step. We recall and we remember his faithfulness and his goodness to us down through the years. We put him central in our thinking. We put him central in our feelings. And that's where the war often happens, with our feelings. We put him central in our feelings. And we think on the sweetness and wonder and love of Christ. And all we've been focusing on this morning, then we stand firm. We put him central in our thinking and in our feelings. And in our planning, 
in our planning by thinking of the needs that we have in our lives. Father, I can't do this on my own. I need you in that central place. Strengthen me. Enable me. Help me, please, to deal with that in our problems and in our needs. We put him front and center. Folks, there's an old legend, and it is nothing more than a legend, but it helps make the point this morning as we wrap things up. The story is told that Satan decided he would go on a sabbatical. And then he decided, well, actually, it's probably time that I retired and gave it all up. And he had an auction for all of his best tools. And some of them were laid out table after table with a price mark attached. But the most expensive one was an iron-shaped wedge tool. When he was asked, why is that the most expensive? He said, well, look at the others. There's murder, there's hate, and there's jealousy, and there's bitterness, and there's lying, and there's theft, there's arrogance, there's pride. So many. He said, but that one in the center is called discouragement. And when I use it, people don't know I'm using it. And I tell them, I tell them, who do they think they are trying to follow Christ like that? After what they're guilty of? How dare they do that? What kind of hypocrite are they? I discourage them. I whisper in their ear late at night and I whisper in their ear early in the morning and I tell them they they are nothing and will never amount to anything. And when Satan comes knocking at your door and whispering in your ear, your immediate response is not to give in to the power and the temptation of sin and to say, Father, thy kingdom come. And I submit and I surrender myself to you afresh this day. Strengthen me. Enable me. Help me to say that I will stand for you and you alone and in your power, by your grace, I will conquer temptation and the sins. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, this morning, we are very conscious that on this communion Sunday morning, we remember all that Christ has done for us. And so, Father, this morning, our prayer is that he would strengthen us, enable us, And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Father, give us your grace, your blessing, your power. Enable us to stand against the power of sin and the act of sin in our lives in order that we might say, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.